I'm going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. This section of Luke that we're in is called the travel narrative. It's a giant chiasm that goes over quite a number of chapters in Luke. There are two parables about prayer here. So you have a chiasm within a chiasm. So you have the Lord's Prayer where he talks about the content of prayer. In other words, what you should say when you pray. That matches with the publican and the Pharisee, which is going to be, I think, in Luke 18. And that talks about the right attitude toward prayer. So you have, these are the things you should talk about, and this should be your attitude. Coming inside on the chiasm, what we're going to have is the friend at midnight, and that will match with the unjust judge. And the deal there is the assurance of prayer. What he does is he takes reprobate humans, a guy that won't get up and help his friend, and a judge who is fundamentally corrupt, and he compares them to your heavenly father who would never treat anybody like that. So you have this giant chiasm. So let's talk about the Lord's Prayer. I'm in Luke 11.1, today's reading. By the way, I am reading from New King James. And the reason for that is there are a bunch of different versions of the Lord's Prayer. The differences go clear back to the Greek manuscripts. Different manuscript traditions add things, subtract things, and so forth. The New King James has got them all. So the ESV has a bunch of stuff left out that is in King James and New King James. So in order to get it all, that's what I'm going to be reading from. Uh, And as I say, these differences are in the Greek manuscripts. They go back that far. In Luke 11, Now it came to pass when he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, the thing that you should take away from that is prayer is a skill. And it's a skill that can be taught. There are lots of people in the body of Messiah that think, oh man, I'm just not articulate, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say, all that kind of stuff. And what Yeshua is saying is, no, there's a skill here, and you can learn it. Um, So then he goes into the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to skip now and come out of Luke and go into Matthew, because Matthew has got stuff that Luke doesn't have. There are two different versions of the Lord's Prayer, the one in Luke and the one in Matthew, and then there are differences that go clear back to the Greek, so you wind up having five or six different versions depending on how you get to it. And as I say, I'm, I'm going to go with the most complete one that exists, so we cover all the bases here. The Matthew passage is in Matthew 6, and the lead in there, verse 7, And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Let me, again, put a prefatory pause in there. For those of you who come out of liturgical churches, Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans, so forth, 
Part of their liturgy is they read the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. There are a lot of evangelicals who say that that is vain repetition. Let me give you an example. Anybody remember old J. Vernon McGee? Bible bus? J. Vernon was a Presbyterian. God love him. God rest him. And his take on this was, well, yeah, that's sort of an outline. But when you pray, do your own prayer. So he's sort of in the camp that this is vain repetition if you do it every week. I don't agree with that, but I'm just saying there are people who are of that opinion. The other thing I'll say right up front to make sure that we get this out of the way, I am not casting any shade on charismatic prayer. You'll have the charismatic tradition where they pray in tongues and all that kind of stuff, and they're sort of shy away from the liturgical kind of prayer. Not casting any shade on that. That's a whole other subject we can talk about another time. Let's look at it now in Matthew 6. So I'm now down to verse 9 and a half. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, you will notice that there are vast differences between what I just read and what Ken read. So, let's start with who we're talking to. Our Father in heaven. Ken's version did not include the in heaven part. It just starts with our Father. And again, that's a Greek manuscript difference. That's not a typo in his Bible, if you will. There are people who are, for example, King James-only folks that look at these differences and say, oh, all those other versions are illegitimate. The only one you want is the one that Jesus himself used, King James. (laughs) That's not what's going on. So the first thing we're talking about is who we're talking to. And one of the things that I say, and I know Brian did the same thing and the Gamble family does the same thing, There are lots of spirits out there. So when you start speaking into the spirit world, what you want to do is you want to make sure that the spirits know exactly who you're talking to. This is routine with me whenever I start praying in the morning or in the evening. What I do is I say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. You are Jehovah. You are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who I'm talking to. That way, if you got some strange spirit floating around and wants to sideswipe or hijack your prayer, I'm not talking to him. And I want to make it real clear I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to my Father in heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is known by the name of Jehovah. That's who I'm talking to. So the first thing that Yeshua does in this prayer is he addresses it to somebody. Hallowed be your name. It may surprise some of you people, but God's last name is not Dam. Yeshua's middle initial is not H. For those of you who don't get the reference, you'll have people say, Jesus H. Christ, in a cursing way. These are taking the name in vain, which is not hallowing the name. Now, the thing about 
the Jews, which they do, and messianics sort of sneer at them, they will not say the name, the tetragrammaton, yod heh vav they will not pronounce it. Instead, wherever it's said, they say Hashem, which is the name. And that is by way of keeping the name holy, keeping it separate, keeping it special. It is not used for common things. Go somewhere in the Middle East and try taking Muhammad's name in vain, or Allah's name in vain. They're very serious about that. Christianity is not, by and large. And what Yeshua is saying here is, that's a mistake. You want the name to be special. You want the name to be sacred. You want the name to be used in a proper way and not treated casually. And because Christianity has lost that concept, as I say, you have people who are of the opinion that God's last name is Dan. And it just flows off their tongue without any thought. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, we're going to camp out here for a little bit. One of the commentaries I read say that there are lots of people who believe that this prayer refers to the end times. In other words, the prayer for the kingdom to come is talking about having Yeshua return soon, having the end times where the millennial reign starts and so forth. That's apparently a fairly common perspective on this prayer. I don't believe that's correct. Now, let's pop up a level. This is an intensely Jewish prayer, which makes sense. Yeshua is talking to Jews, and he himself was a Jew. Judaism's perspective on our task and role in this world is our job is to bring heaven down to earth. Our job is to repair the creation that we broke. About 1700, Christianity had a focus shift, and it was gradual. The emphasis in Christianity shifted from governance to salvation. And the focus of Christianity after about 1700 came to be soul winning and getting people to heaven. Judaism's focus is bringing heaven down to earth. We've got a covenant, and what happens to us after death is God's deal, and he'll do whatever he does, and we have a covenant, we trust him. That's not what we're worried about. Our job is to make the earth as close to heaven as possible, which means that God's will is done on earth. Very fundamental difference between the focus of Judaism and Christianity. Before about 1700, the focus of Christianity was similar to the focus of Judaism. The idea was the Bible is the model for human governments. And what they did is they set up government systems that were reflected from the Bible. That's our Constitution. Our Constitution is set up based on Torah principles. And notice our Constitution was written about 1700. So we're sort of at the beginning of this change in focus. So the Constitution was written under 
an older understanding of the function of Christianity and since then the function has shifted and now this focus is soul winning and getting people to heaven instead of making the earth as much like heaven as is possible. Hence, the interpretation of this phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, shifts to eschatology in times. You see how those two things are consistent? If you lose the focus of governing on earth as best you can the way Yeshua himself would govern, and we're not Yeshua and we're not God and we're going to be imperfect, but if your goal is to do that, your focus on this prayer is that's what we're supposed to do. If your goal is getting people to heaven, then your focus on this prayer is second coming, millennial reign, eschatology. Now, my personal belief is the focus should be here. Yeshua is going to come back when God decides it's time for him to come back. That's not my problem. My problem is how do we live now? And that's what the focus of the prayer is. Give us this day our daily bread. That will obviously take you back or take the listeners to this back to manna. Because remember, in the wilderness, they got their daily bread. They gathered it on the day they were going to eat it. If they tried to store any of it, it stank and bred worms, remember? Except Shabbat, when they got a double portion, and it was allowed to be kept overnight. So this idea of daily bread would have been very familiar to the people listening to this prayer. Now, the other thing from our perspective starting in Deuteronomy all the way through the prophets when God blesses Israel which he does and Israel becomes fat which they do what happens is they turn to other gods it's just like clockwork God sends them prophets and tells them to come back they may listen for a little while but generally they don't listen so God finally sends them into exile. Paganism in Israel is a reaction to the prosperity and blessing of God. Why? Well, the reason for that is God tells you, all right, if you're going to have a good society, this is how you're going to have to behave. You've got to get married. You've got to stay married. You ought to have lots of children. You ought to give and be generous. You ought to forgive. All these kinds of things are God's prescription for having a blessed community. So when Israel is weak and scattered and poor, they focus on that. And so their society blossoms and flourishes and becomes prosperous. And then they start looking around. This just one woman, I mean, that's kind of restrictive, and this one guy is kind of restrictive, and we got more children than we want to feed, and all sorts of stuff starts going through their head. And what pagan worship does is offers you unlimited sex with anything you want to have sex with, sort of like where we are right now. Furthermore, paganism is really big on disposing of unwanted children, all pagan societies did this. So there's all sorts of 
attractions to pagan worship if you're not worried about the crops coming in. You understand what's going on here? Once we have our material needs taken care of, we start looking around and say, oh, that looks kind of fun. And the nice thing about child sacrifice is you can kill your children and you can feel virtuous about it. In other words, you're serving God, a God. So when Yeshua in this prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, what he is telling you is have a focus like you had in the wilderness when it was manna. And if you didn't get your manna every day, you went hungry. So you want to look on the blessings of God in the same way you look at manna. What you want to do is you want to depend on them every day. And you don't want to look to the fact that your barns are full and your wine presses are overflowing and get the idea that, well, you know, we can skip it this week. We can skip it this year. Hey, we may even skip it for a decade. No, he says your attitude should be every day. Look to God to provide what you need, your daily bread. That's what that's talking about. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay, now that one is also odd. There are several different versions of this. One of them is in Luke. Forgive us our sins. Or forgive us our debts. So sins, debts, which is it? And we forgive those who are indebted to us. Or we forgive those who have sinned against us. And by the way, these are all legitimate translations. So let's think about this for a minute. Forgive us our debts. What's a debt? Something that you borrow. In other words, you borrow from someone, it becomes a debt, and you're obligated to repay it, right? So are we in debt to God? Not really. I mean, you can sort of metaphorically say, well, this life is on loan. Sort of like Russell Limbaugh's thing, a talent on loan from God. But God doesn't give it to us as a debtor does, expecting to be paid back with interest. That's not what he's talking about. So forgive us our sins, I kind of like, but do whatever you like with that one because both are legitimate translations. And then the idea of forgiveness. This again, in that society, would remind them of the Shmeta year, the seventh year when debts are forgiven, and the Yovel. Because again, he's talking to Jews, and they would have understood that there is a time when debts are forgiven. And so what he says is, do it. Forgive. Some translations are trespasses. A trespass is a tort. In other words, it's an offense. So these are all legitimate translations. But the point is, forgive. And Yeshua in the Matthew translation adds in verse 14. It's not part of the prayer, but it's an explanation of the prayer in Matthew, which does not occur in Luke. So verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's in the Matthew version. It's not in the Luke version. The deal there, obviously, for all of you who have been around for a while, is God's economy is measure for measure. The measure that you use will be used to measure back to you. So if you don't forgive those who have trespassed against you, neither will you be forgiven. But as I say, there's debts, trespasses, sins. It wobbles all over the place in the various translation and textual things. But the point I get from this is the measure you use, the same measure will be used measured back to you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That one's difficult because it runs into James. And let me take you to James and sort of remind you of what that says. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's not quite true. Who did God tempt? Yeshua. He was sent into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, was he not? After the baptism, remember? Immediately the Spirit sent him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And yes, Satan is the one that then tempted him, but God is the one who set it up. Who else did he set up temptation for? Job. Remember, everybody came and said, curse God and die. That's the temptation. So what Yeshua is saying here is, do not lead us into temptation. Now, when Yeshua was tempted in the wilderness, Yeshua being the Son of God as he was and is, was perfectly capable of dealing with Satan. (laughs) We're not quite as good at it as he was. So the prayer here is, protect us, because this world is evil. And the evil one is abroad in the world, and we are asking you not to put us into temptation, and we are asking you not to let the evil one prevail over us. We need your help there. The final one is the doxology, and this is... Again, in Matthew 6, it is not in the Luke version. And furthermore, it's not in all Greek manuscripts. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. By the way, how many things are there? Three. Ooh. What are you going to do with that? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I haven't talked about this in a while, but one of the things that you should perk up and pay attention to is every time you see a triplet like that in scripture so God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind that's another one of these triplets so let's look at yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory so whose is the kingdom Yeshua he's the king whose is the power the Holy Spirit And whose is the glory? The Father. 
So every time you see one of these little triplets, just sort of pay attention to what's going on and think about it a second. The problem that I have, and I suspect many of you have, is when you read scripture, you've read it so many times, that your mind just goes right over it, and it doesn't register. But it's important. So, that's the Lord's Prayer. And what I will suggest to you is, it is a good prayer. To go back to my dear friend Vernon McGee, I never met him, but I used to love him. It's a model to prayer as well. What it does is it's like bullet points. And as you pray, hit all the points, but you can add your own stuff in there. That's perfectly acceptable. So prayer is a skill, and prayer is a skill that can be learned. There's sort of a couple of things about prayer that are, I think, important. Uh, Thing one is it is conversation with God. One of the reasons God created us is for relationship. And so one of the ways to relate to God is to talk to him. Prayer in that sense is conversation. The other thing about prayer, and especially the Lord's Prayer like this, is it puts you in a frame of mind that is proper for your relationship. So let's go to the publican and the Pharisee, which we'll get when we get there several weeks from now. You remember the publican and the Pharisee, you got the Pharisee standing up and say, Oh, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like this poor slob over here. You know, I fast and I tithe. And the attitude there is, God, I could worship anybody, but I'm going to worship you and aren't you fortunate? I mean, that's the attitude. And the thing about prayer is it disabuses you of that attitude. That's one of the reasons I like the doxology at the end of the Matthew version. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. That puts me in the proper relationship to him. That's important to me. Because all of us have this problem with pride. And the nice thing about this prayer is it has things in it that are designed to deal with that. So, by all means, use it. Don't don't think, as I started off, if you came from a liturgical background, that saying this every week, every day, every whatever is vain repetition. It is not. I mean, I suppose it could be, but that's not the idea here. Feel free to add to it because you're having conversation with your father. But by all means, use it as a model. It's the right content of prayer.